0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: ...in the Lord Jesus Christ, because there's no one who is more worthy to be worshiped than the Lord himself. So who would we want to worship? Would be the Lord and him alone. Not next to something else, not a little bit above something else, but him and him alone. It's all the worship. Everything that we have, we move and have our being because of the Lord. All that we have is from the Lord. So he becomes the object of our worship. Okay, I think we get that. We know a little bit about what worship is. We know a little bit about who to worship. But maybe another question that goes a little bit deeper would be, why would we want to worship the Lord? Well, to begin with, of what we already said, he's of value and he's the only king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but why we really worship him is that it does a lot for us when we do. When we settle our life down and we give him all the praise and the worship, it has a, a capacity to work within us, to settle us down, to give us a sense of place when for that moment we realize that, yep, he really is large and in charge. And yep, he is God and therefore he can be not only large and in charge, but near and dear and so we worship him because who he is but at the same time he wants us to worship him bow down our knees together in worship and praise the lord scripture says so we do it because he wants us to do it it's not that he needs the worship and without it he's empty it does more for us when we do and he gets such pleasure we're giving him such pleasure when we worship him so now the question is where can we worship him i like to perhaps define it in three places very simple One, I can worship Him and I should worship Him what I call on the inside. That means wherever I go, I'm worshiping Him on the inside and He obviously wants me to worship Him with a clean heart, a clean mind. We often refer to that as holiness, that we're setting ourselves apart for His purpose of getting glory. And so it's on the inside. So that means I can worship wherever I am, which really helps me because if I was a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whether I was a first responder, military person, whether I had to work at daytime or nighttime, it doesn't matter, wherever I am, I can be worshiping the Lord, and Scripture just has a lot of principles on that. But I also can worship Him not just on the inside, but on the outside, which means no matter where I go, I can worship Him, whether it's on the hike or if I'm sitting on a board waiting for a wave. I can take wherever I'm at in a location that there's no place I really can't worship Him. Now, I will tell you that places that has a lot of head-banging activity around me often can be very difficult for me to worship because it's just so much slamming against my senses that it's harder for me from the inside out, wherever I'm at, to really focus on Him. But yet in reality, we can worship Him. And a lot of times in Scripture, you're going to see the Lord Jesus speaking and communing with the Father, whether it's on the water, or whether it's on the mountain, or whether it's in the desert, so no matter where it is. But there's also another place we can worship Him, not just on the inside and not just on the outside, but also I like to say this we can worship Him alongside. Now, what do I mean by that? That means wherever we are, when there's other people, especially believers, of course, there's a specialness in worshiping. And we could take that all the way back to Scripture. In the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle and they gathered around the tabernacle as a way to commune with the Lord, as a place to worship Him. Later on, they built this huge temple. And it was through that temple was an object of a place, a sense of place, we'd say here in Hawaii, to worship Him. And that's why Christians Going way back, even to the time in the New Testament church where they didn't have cathedrals and big buildings like this, they would gather in a place, in a home, wherever it was, to be alongside others so that there'd be a corporate experience of worshiping the Lord. There's just something special when we're alongside others while we're worshiping Him from the inside out. So that's where we can worship Him, and we can worship Him anytime. time. Well, now we move into some questions like, well, how do I worship Him? Well, we can talk about the external part of the postures of worship. In the Old Testament, there's many different postures in which they're worshiping the Lord. But remember, God still wanted them to worship Him with a clean heart, turned toward Him in full dependence on Him. So sometimes that showed when people would lay flat on the ground, prostrate, prostrate, they would say, laying down. That was a sign of humility before the Lord, laying down in the dirt. Other times they would stand in respect, like in the Old Testament, The younger men would stand around older men to show them honor, so we're showing honor to the Lord, so we stand. Let's stand together and pray. That's often done. Other times, they will lift their hands up to the Lord like this, and basically that was a sign to say, we have all of us, all of what we have comes from you, and we're ready to receive that. So our life and all that we have in it, those resources are from you, and we're ready to receive it. Sometimes it's with palms way up, and it's a sign of really praising the Lord, almost like we saw in that brief video a few moments ago. So it doesn't matter the style so much in how we do it, as long as our heart is turned toward the Lord. And at the same time we're worshiping, we're also not confounding someone else's worship experience. Another time we see them worshiping the Lord by beating their chest. So there's different ways, whether you kneel, you stand, you lay down, hands up, palms up, it doesn't really matter. Excuse me. It does matter, though, that we're worshiping him from the heart, and so I want to give you the freedom to worship the Lord in a way that is most expressive of who you are on the inside, not to demonstrate to someone else that you're a better worshiper because you're more demonstrative with your worship, or that you're less, or to be made made to feel less of a worshiper if you just want to be very quiet in the very quietness and the solitude of that moment, that you are fully fixed upon the Lord. And in your heart of hearts, you're giving him all the praise and the glory. In fact, the word that we hardly ever use is the word we exalt the Lord. Not exalt him, exalt him. We're giving all the joy and the rejoicing and all the praise coming unto the Lord, whether it's a very quiet posture. So really, it's not so much in all these different outside ways we do it, but it comes from our heart. Well, now I want to take us back to the Christmas story that is probably along with Mary coming into Bethlehem and then the baby being born in a stable, but the baby laid in a manger then, that's a story that's often told. And then alongside that story, we move from Luke into Matthew, or back into Matthew, and we study a little bit about those um, wise men, as Luke talks about, or the Magi, as Matthew talks about, and we see the story of them. Now, there's a lot of history behind who were the Magi. What about the star? And I'll touch a little bit on that. I don't have a lot of time, but I'll give you a little bit of that. But I don't want to get caught up in all the historical geographical stuff, as important as that is, because that really adds surround sound and technicolor to this. I want to focus just a little bit more about what we might gain from these guys, these magi, in their worship of the Lord. So when I invite you to go through this study, as we're going to learn these truths, I don't want you to just know more about how those guys worshiped, I'd like you to think that's how they worship, but how is my heart? Do I similarly want to worship the same Lord in a way that would give him all the praise and the glory and the honor? And There will be six of these that I'm going to take from this passage, but I encourage you to read this passage over very quietly, very slowly, and then when you do it on your own, pick out from there some, perhaps some insights on your own worship as it might mirror and maybe even expand the worship of these special magi. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to Matthew chapter 2, shall we? Matthew chapter 2, and while I'm going to pick apart some of these verses, I think it would be good for us to just hear this story one more time in its entirety. So I'm going to read to you verses 1 through verse 12. Now, while you're turning in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, there's some there in the racks there, I would like you to know that this isn't just some little Christmas story that Christians thought up, and it sounds really great, and we've been using this as tradition throughout the years and centuries, But this really did happen. There really were magi. There really was a little town of Bethlehem. There really was Jesus who lived at that time, who is alive forevermore today. So let me read this to you, just verses 1 through verse 12, and you can follow along and listen with your mind and your heart. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? for we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him were troubled. So gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, in you, Bethlehem, land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and you have found him. Report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Well, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. That's the end of what we're going to be covering for just today. Now, for some of you, let me give you what we might call a bird's eye view of this passage so you have a greater understanding of it. First of all, let me give you some of the myths that come out of this. One of it would be that there would be um, three kings Well, we really don't believe they were kings so much, although the magi held a very high ranking next to the kings because they generally were wise in astronomy and astrology and a lot of the natural sciences. So they really were wise guys. They were very intelligent. They really knew what to do, and they could predict things based on that, and often were given some special dreams, either permitted by the Lord or prescribed. So these wise men could be looked upon as great influencers. On the other hand, we really don't know that they were three kings in so many of the various Christmas carols. Now, where did we come up with three kings? If you'll notice, there'll be three gifts that are given. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One, two, three. So they thought each king brought something separate. It's possible. I can't say that that's not the case. But at the same time, I can't say there were three kings. All we know is that there were kings or magi that would come. Here it says magi. Luke calls them wise men, again, keeping with the same scene. The other thing that's very interesting is this. In this passage, you are going to see that Jesus is not referred to as baby Jesus. Yes, I do believe he was very much close to baby, but he had grown some. Because in this passage, he's referred to always as the child. Secondly, we know that he's not any longer in a stable or even in a manger, but he's in a house. It is quite possible that at this particular time of Jesus's life, it's a little bit beyond the birth, maybe only by a few months. Here's what we do know about Jewish culture. What we do know, culture in Old Testament writing, is this, is that he would be circumcised on the eighth day. Probably they wouldn't do that if they were setting him down in a dirty stable in a manger. Secondly, they knew this, that Mary would have to go through a time of purification, and when she was finished with the purification time after having a man-child, Jesus, then she would then give an offering. Now there are two basic kinds of offering. One was an offering that would cost a lot of money, generally an animal. Others would be a very small offering like a turtle dove or we would call it a pigeon today. And she, according to Luke, gave an offering of a turtle dove or a pigeon, which now would tell me that they really didn't have a lot of money. One question I haven't had answered yet is obviously he was born in a stable because there was no more rooms left. Apparently We know that the uh, big feast was over with, things were done, things passed, and all of a sudden some rooms opened up. So they must have had a little bit of money to buy the turtle dove, a little bit of money to get a room in a house, it says, because these wise men went into not a stable but into the house. But now they had to travel very shortly, if we read on. They then left Bethlehem and they went all the way down into Egypt. Now where in the world would they get money to be able to do that? Well, the only thing I can think of is it's possible that with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they were able to take that and translate that into some type of um, economy that would allow them the opportunity to not only go to Egypt in fleeing from Herod at the voice of the Lord, God, so that they would also stay there for at least two years. They would be way away from their family and friends and support system, so somehow God took care of them. The other thing that might be interesting is if you look at the three main characters that are in this passage, not three kings, but three characters. One character is going to be Herod. I would like for you on your own to do a study of Herod. Now what you will find that could get very complicated is how many different Herods they were and who was the first Herod, the second Herod, the son, the grandson, and all of that and how that fit into the kind of culture that was there. The one thing that you might take away from it is those Herods still represented leadership kings that were tremendously hostile towards Jesus Christ all along. This particular Herod was a ruthless person anyway. He was an egomaniac on steroids. He was one that wanted everyone to basically worship him. He married a quasi-Jewish woman so that she in some way would ingratiate with the Jewish people because he wanted to be king of the Jews himself. In fact, he got some of the leadership in Rome along with the Roman Senate to then grant him the title of king of the Jews and then send him back into Jerusalem. But he was so fearful that anyone would come in and take away the clout that he had, that he had them killed. He had his wife killed, his brother-in-law killed, he had his mother-in-law killed, he had a couple of his kids killed, and when he was near death in his own life, he then wanted to have all the prisoners killed so that some family members, at least of the prisoners, would be mourning because he felt no one would mourn his death, so he wanted the city to mourn and let people think they were mourning for him. But that wasn't the worst case. What made him such a diabolical person, a ruthless killer, was the very fact that he wanted to kill the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. And so he had all the boy children killed two years and younger in the little town of Bethlehem. And I can only imagine you mothers if you now had someone else come in who was known as being such a horrible, barbaric person, then send his henchmen after you and your son who is only two years old, you're bonding so close, you gave birth just a short time knowing that that child would be killed. That's the Herod that you're reading here. So when you read this and your kids read, you know, Herod did all of this, he was a terrible individual. And all it reminds me is the hostility that is still found in people today, particularly against Christians. And we don't even hear the half of it. We heard a little bit this morning, and I don't know that you even picked it up, when she said the Christian station that was in this town had a host. He and his two other guys working with him were brutally killed because they were Christians. And so that's the Herod. The second player in this story is one that is um, pretty prominent in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, and that would be the scribes and the chief priests. Now, as you read this, and I'll go through this in a moment, you're going to find that they were what we would call indifferent. They knew where the Messiah would be born. In fact, they even pointed the direction of Bethlehem to Herod saying, hey, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. They knew that. That would be a lot of people today, maybe religionists, and maybe even some Christians that so well know the Word of God, but they haven't allowed the Word of God to change them from the inside out. So they are very indifferent. And that indifference actually put them on the borderline of often being hostile towards Jesus and just read the rest of the Gospels as Jesus grows up and he starts having his ministry. Those people really worked against him. So even indifference is not such a neutral place. And then you have the third character, and that brings us full circle all the way back to these wise men, the magi. And these folks, you'll notice, they worship. So if you wanted to know the main idea of verses 1 through 12, there's a lot of good it truths in there, fulfill prophecy in here as well. But I want you to know the key thought of this is still going to be worship. If you will, just look for a moment at the last part of verse 2. It says, they saw his star in the east, and they have come to worship him. So the idea is to find Jesus so they could worship Him. Drop down, if you will, to another passage. And if you will, look over here in verse 11. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and they worshiped Him. So they went with the intention of worshiping Him. They then did what they had to do to find Him so they could worship Him. And then when they found Him, they demonstrated a heart of worship that they carried with them all the way from the east as they were heading out to find Jesus. So the main thought is worship. So let's just kind of bring that full circle to us. I know that many of the things that we do in our, our life are good deeds. We provide for our family. We do the things necessary to protect them. We do things even in Christian realm. We study the Bible, maybe even sing, even serve, could even preach. And a lot of that is good of the tinsel on the outside. But the real meat of the passage is Do we really love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind? What is the primary motivation that we do everything in our life? And you don't have to separate secular and sacred. It doesn't mean, well, that's so secular out there, so I really can't do much worship there. But I can do it in church, so I'll find my, my experience in church, or I'll find it on a CD in my car when I'm driving home, or I'll have a private worship experience when I'm out at the water, the beach, or maybe on a hike, and I get all of that. But I want us to know that when we worship the Lord, it's every part of what we do, even in the secular arena. What we're doing is we're serving our boss as if he is the Lord, as unto the Lord we're doing this, and we're doing it all as a form of worship. And that's in a sense what these magi were doing. Well, that's a little bit of the backstory to get you understanding the three kinds of people. Those are three people in our world, and I sure don't want to be hostile like the Herods, and I certainly don't want to be indifferent like the scribes and the chief priests. I certainly want to be one who is known to worship, watch this, no matter the cost, even if it would mean my life. So let's look at the passage and just extrapolate from it maybe six different uh, ways that we might really worship the Lord. So how do we do it? Well, first of all, we need to start with a sincere desire. In verse 1 it says, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Like I mentioned before, we don't know exactly what country they came from. It's quite possible that they came from Persia, which would be near Iran today, we might say. this: These type of people, the Magi, really kind of, you can find their roots going all the way back and even through the time of Daniel, that even some of the wise men that were around Daniel were very much like these Magi here. So they were in the east. And perhaps through oral tradition, probably because they were so close to those that were Jewish people of prominence, that they wedded into their Zoroastrian belief system a monolithic God. There was one God. In addition to that, they understood some degree of the one God being the Yahweh of the Bible. And so in some measure that there was some truth that they had that there really was a one God. And it's highly likely this one God is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they might not have had a fully developed theological orthodox system, but they had enough there that would cause them to want to go to see Jesus. Now, notice the passage that I read to you never said that they wanted to go see Jesus just to see if this is really true. Let's see if what we heard about really makes sense. Does it really match up from the very beginning? Something deep inside of them, even with all the trappings of some incorrect doctrine maybe, they knew that beat their heart beat with a, a beat for the Lord, and they wanted to go see him, and they came from the east. Now, for us to go somewhere here in Hawaii, it's a challenge. We've got to get on a plane, fly at least five hours to the mainland, California, and however else we have to go. These guys likely took days, weeks, maybe longer. My thinking is, probably from the time that Jesus was born himself, they had some degree of understanding when that would be until now, how many months that would be, they became men on a mission to worship him. And that's where the star comes in. So what I'd like you to maybe just think about in your own life is your own sincere desire to worship. Will you and me pay the price to affect our schedules, affect our life enough to so change it that we will do what we need to do to be able to really worship the Lord? And so as I looked at this and I wrote my own notes, my own notes simply is this. I can make the excuse I can worship the Lord inside, outside, alongside. But I, I kind of throw it into a 20 minutes here, 15 minutes there. When I think about it over there, an hour here on Sunday... I want to now go much further than that. I want to look at my calendar to make sure that I have not allowed the good things in this life, because hopefully we are good people, so we put in good things in our life, to crowd out the greatest thing we should be doing, which is worship. So in some measure, are we willing to change our life, go where we need to go, be what we need to be, do what we need to do, to sacrifice what we need to sacrifice, because of this deep, sincere desire that we want to worship him, and we will not allow events to crowd it out. We're not going to allow other things to keep us from a concentrated time of worship. All right, just think about that. Number two, we need to develop what I call an expectant spirit. Notice where it says here, the magi's were asking. I wish you you could understand a little bit of the Greek. I just I just discovered this as I did this study this week. They were so desirous to know where is this baby going to be that they'd seen, you know, with the star, that they asked everybody in Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jerusalem was a huge city, especially around feast time. So they were asking everybody they could, "Where is this Jesus? Does anybody know about this baby? We saw this star. It's kind of in this direction. Anybody heard about it?" And so word got back to Herod, and along with his chief priests and they said, oh yeah, we know about this babe. We know about when he was supposed to be born. We also know he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so Bethlehem is just a few miles just down the road from here. That's where he is. Herod didn't go then. The chief priests and the scribes didn't go then. These men then heard that message and so they went to go see him. So I look at this and they went with a real expectant spirit. In other words, okay, that's where they're supposed to be. We're going to find him here. Now, there's a lot to be said about the star because that star keeps showing up in this passage. So maybe I need to speak to that because some of you are a little bit more into science and you're wondering, how, did, did, did God have a special star and what really went on? And, and there's a lot of study today about people trying to go all the way back to that period of time and they try to say, well, that was two years before the birth of Christ, a year after the birth of Christ, B.C., eight, you know, how did they do? And they, they seem to come from that the following information. They'll say that there was Jupiter was at a particular place in the celestials that it became very, very bright, like we can see Jupiter very bright certain times of the year. Then they said, no, there was also a coming together of Jupiter and Saturn, one of those freaky times when the planets kind of line up, and so all of a sudden at night, these two planets...